Everybody, welcome back to another episode of Unwise Girls. I'm your host, Jacqueline. And I'm your other host, Jane. How you doing today, Jane? I'm doing I'm doing pretty good. I'm excited to talk about these chapters. How are you? So am I. I'm also doing well. This is our funny podcast where we're talking currently about the Titan's curse. And also, funnily enough, this is the final episode of the Titan's Curse. It's true. I mean, until, like, the TV show comes out and they get to the Titan's Curse arc and we have to watch it. Ooh. Yeah, but that's going to be, like, 17 years from now. Yeah, true. I wonder if the TV show will be out while we're still doing this podcast. Probably, right? I think so. Like, it seems like it's only a couple of years out and we've got a shitload of these to get through. Yeah, we've got a few years under our belt. Uh, Not under our belt, but, like, coming under our belt i don't know how to like reframe that we got like four months under our belt that's a lot yeah but it's not three years Eh, if you round up to the nearest three years and don't round down to zero yeah that's true it's just like when i was in gym class and my teacher always said if you get one seventeenth of the way through the track then you may as well keep going because you're almost halfway there if you round up and don't round down i'm sorry it was me jacqueline i was your high school gym teacher Oh my gosh, Jane. Anyway, let's get right into the chapters. Hell yeah. Chapter 18. A friend says goodbye. After nightfall, when the group lands, Annabeth thanks her dad for his help before Thalia returns their attention to Zoe. She's dying, mortally wounded by Atlas while saving Percy, and Artemis can't save Zoe, but she can make her last moments comfortable. Zoe reconciles with Thalia and tells Percy she's honored he's the one carrying her sword, before remarking to her lady Artemis that she can finally see the stars again. She looks into the night sky and is finally able to rest. While the children hold back their anguish, Artemis catches Zoe's spirit in her hand and, saying a blessing, releases it into the sky, where it vanishes, leaving a new constellation in its wake, a bow-wielding girl, so she can live forever in the stars. Eventually, Artemis leaves for Olympus, but not before giving reassuring parting words to Annabeth, Thalia, and Percy. Blackjack and his Pegasi friends then arrive, and the kids begin their flight to Olympus. Thalia conks out, and Annabeth and Percy briefly and awkwardly talk about her family before Annabeth declares that there's no way Luke is actually dead. She knows, the same way Percy knew she wasn't. Percy doesn't argue, but he's pissed because he thinks, out of all the people who've died on their journey... Luke is the only one who actually deserved it. They arrive in Manhattan, and Thalia wakes up, pointing to the Empire State Building where the Winter Solstice Council of the Gods has begun. Chapter 19. The Gods Vote How to Kill Us Percy, Thalia, and Annabeth enter the Silver Gates of Olympus and walk into the Gods' throne room. The Twelve Gods are all there, as well as Grover and the Ophiatorus. Artemis tells them that Zeus has commanded her and Apollo to hunt down the most powerful monsters before they can join the Titans, for Athena to check on the security of each Titan's prison, for Poseidon to send the Princess Andromeda to the bottom of the sea. Unfortunately, the gods are also debating murdering Percy and Thalia and the Ophiatorus before any of them can fulfill their prophecies and bring down the gods. However, 
Artemis declares then that she will choose a new lieutenant. Percy panics and wants to plead for Annabeth to not join, but before he can, Artemis asks Thalia to join the hunt. She accepts, preventing herself from turning 16 on her birthday the next day, absolving herself of the prophecy, and giving herself some peace, finally. After her pledge, she hugs Percy, Annabeth, and Grover, telling Percy she's proud to be his friend. The gods are voting to not destroy anyone, building an aquarium on Olympus for the Aphiators can stay safe, and then the party to honor the heroes starts. Poseidon lets Percy know that Luke is still alive and making alliances with the old spirits of the ocean. Then Athena meets with Percy and warns him against being led astray by his own fatal flaw, personal loyalty, always wanting to help his friends above everything else. Finally, Annabeth and Percy meet, each carrying a new streak of gray in their hair from holding up the sky, and they dance. Slow, sad, but hopeful. Chapter 20. I get a new enemy for Christmas. Before leaving Olympus, Percy IMs with Tyson, who promises to visit and fix his shield next summer, and Sally, who he fills in on how the quest went before telling her that if her boyfriend makes her happy, he's genuinely happy for her. When Annabeth, Percy, and Grover get back to camp, they sit with Chiron and some of the other senior campers for a while, including Clarice, who's come back from her quest with new scars, short, ragged hair, and vital information. Percy lets them all know that Luke is still alive, and Chiron laments that Luke's forces will surely attack the camp the next two years before Percy's 16th birthday. He's interrupted by Nico, looking for Bianca, and Percy takes him on a walk to break the news. Percy gives Nico the figurine Bianca had wanted to have, but Nico is furious, flinging the figure to the ground and screaming that the nightmares were right about not trusting Percy, and that he can feel Bianca's soul being judged in the underworld. Before he can explain that feeling, skeleton warriors rise from the ground and attack, but though Percy tries to fight them off, what vanquishes them is Nico screaming go away, causing the earth to open up and swallow them. He then runs away, shouting that he wishes Percy was dead. Percy tries to follow, but slips on the figurine Nico threw away. A statue of Hades. Annabeth, Grover, and Percy search the woods for hours, and after not finding a trace of Nico, they agree that they have to keep his parentage secret to prevent a war among the gods. Percy says that he will take the responsibility of the prophecy so that Nico won't have to suffer more, and that he'll make sure Luke is too busy to even try recruiting Nico. Back with Chiron, they report that Nico is sadly lost with no other details, and Chiron seems to buy it. He encourages Percy to focus this winter on school, because the attack likely won't come until next summer, and Annabeth says she's going to try out San Francisco. She's about to tell Percy one last thing when Grover runs in, frantic, and says that when he was playing music and drinking coffee in the parlor, Pam, Lord of the Wild, spoke in his mind, three words, I await you. So, what'd you think of the chapters this week? Holy shit, what a good set of chapters. Right? This is... I know we were saying, like, we were arguing back and forth last week about, you know, is that the best set of chapters we've gotten? Uh, I think this may be it. This may have topped them. Uh, honestly, yes. These were perfect. This was a perfect ending, first of all. Definitely. If you'd asked me coming in to this funny little podcast, whether I was going to be full-on sobbing at, like, one of the chapters of this of this series... I would have said maybe, but probably <laughs> not because I'm an, I'm an emotional person, but I don't know if Percy Jackson can reach those emotional heights. The 
the Zoe chapter destroyed me. It's yeah, it fucked me up too. I I had to like read the summary multiple times beforehand to make sure because the first time I did it, I was cr- I started crying again upon Aww. thinking about it because it it was just so good and that the same extends to the like second to last and last chapter as well. They were both extremely good, emotionally fulfilling. Everything paid off. It was had an a, a great cliffhanger. It's all great. Absolutely, yeah. I I mean as like a tone setter for what kind of what I hope is a tone setter for the rest of the series, it does a really good job of like, you know, raising the stakes and making everything feel that much more dangerous. We talked in um, the Sea of Monsters mm-hmm. about how the opening of it set the scene for like the entire book's tone. Yeah. Of like when they get to Camp Half Blood, it's like being ravaged, and I think to an extent there was a problem there like tonally and that it didn't quite match up to that yeah it didn't really follow through on that idea this feels like a this feels like what is definitely going to become like a permanent shift in the series yeah this is definitely a turning point into like a more serious tone and i'm i'm really down for that because in these in this book it's uh, Rick has proven that he's got the chops. Yeah, I, I will say, like, my faith is thoroughly restored after these chapters. If we go into the Battle of the Labyrinth and somehow it's, like, absolute trash garbage, I would be surprised. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Am I saying it's impossible? No. But I would be surprised. Listen, any any book series can completely fly off the rails and turn into a shitfest at any time, with no warning. That's very true. But I'm confident in it right now. I there's And there's so much to talk about. These chapters are packed. Yeah, we're kind of circling around and talking generalities because there's just a shitload to get through. <laughs> right. How do we want to do this? You want to do it chapter by chapter? I think, yeah, we should just kind of go through it methodically and talk about each of the developments. Okay. So, what was your take on Zoe's death? Uh, I think it's like... and it's, it's like my favorite kind of death scene where it doesn't shy away from how, like, shocking and horrible death can be. Like, she gets some, some poignant last interactions with people, but her last words are basically her, like, delirious and dying... And just kind of saying what she sees. Like, I think it's just really impactful. It really is. And, like, it's it's built up earlier because we really like the conversation that she had with Percy on the, the uh, I think it was the... Yeah, they were in the kayaks. Yeah, and in that conversation she mentioned, like, it's impossible to see the stars anymore. There's so much, like, air pollution. Oh, yeah. And... Like that paying off to like her her last words being like, "I can see the stars." Like there's so many stars out. It's it it tugs at my heart so much. It's it's beautiful Absol- payoff. Yeah, I mean all of these chapters are like incredible setup and payoff for different plot points. Yeah, the Nico stuff, everything with uh, pretty much it it, it it's everything. It's everything like. It's 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 all it was all set up basically like there's no sudden last minute developments 
There's no like big twist necessarily. This is this all just follows. It's a twist, but it's the best kind of twist where like it's not just new information, it just recontextualizes what you already knew. Right, because to an extent, like the idea that the idea of like the D'Angelo's parentage was is a twist. Yeah. But it's also it's still set up because Bianca had that knife that could kill like she for some reason could just kill skeletons and nobody else could. Mm-hmm. And they had a mysterious parent and it was right around the time of World War Two. It's all it was all there. I but I agree with you that Zoe's death was perfect. I this is something that is like going to him. This is the first big death of the series. No offense to Bianca. Yeah. <laughs> But this is like, this feel. This is the first blood of the war. This, yeah, like, I, we didn't know Bianca that well when she died, and that was a complaint we had. But like that stacks on top of Zoe's death, and it makes it like very apparent that this is the first quest that we've had with a body count. Exactly, it's completely different. It's this is we're entering the period of like war. And horrific, like, personal loss. And to that extent, I'm excited, I guess. But I'm also kind of terrified for what's to come. Oh, absolutely. There's a couple elements in here that I think are subtler forms of, like, setup and payoff that I want to discuss. Okay, interesting. I've, I've also got uh, something like that in here. Would you like to start? Please. Uh, I think... This, this book was quite prescient in that uh, a few years before the phrase entered common parlance, um, Rick Riordan employed the phrase, not all men. Oh, Christ. <laughs> <sighs> okay, you send this to me. You send this to me before. I, you send this to me before I read the chapters, and I screamed. I, I, I saw it, and in my home that I live in, I, I emitted a shriek. <laughs> Because I I thought you were sending me like a parody, like you had written this. <laughs> no, it's real. No, it's very okay, and it's not. It's a it's a very it's an extremely nice moment. It's yeah. It's Zoe saying that like she's become like friends. She's a, she's it's it's Zoe saying that like she sees that like not every like male hero is going to like destroy her yeah it's acknowledging that percy's not like hercules yes and that he is like a good person which i think is important to establish here Mm -hmm. because because that's setting up something that is going to be important from here on out i want to talk about percy's character arc here Uh uh-huh and not just character arc but like I want to talk. Basically, what I want to talk about is the scene with Athena and what that means. I think we've talked a lot about how the structures of these books have kind of been repetitive. Yeah. Friend gets captured. Percy abandons everything to go save somebody very dear to him and risks his life and risks horrible things happening to try and fulfill it. And what we get with the athena conversation is an acknowledgement of that and 
an acknowledgement that this is like a very intentional theme that is playing out. Yeah. Like I'm I'm much more okay with this now that it's been established as like, okay, this is like this is part of a character thing for Percy. This isn't just I can't think of a new plot for the next book. Exactly. Like the idea that Percy would abandon the world to save one of his friends. That's not something that had been so concretely laid out as it is here now. It was something that we could draw on and like it was obviously yeah. implied in the text. But I think it's important that this is laid out as specifically not just a like specifically a dangerous trait that he has that could hurt a lot of people. Yeah, like I really like that first that we get Percy as like a really like empathetic hero. And then that that gets that idea gets played with instead of just like used completely straight. Exactly, it introduces a new character conflict for Percy that we probably need to explore in like a in a setting that is going to become a huge war. Almost certainly. So I I appreciate that. I appreciate that. I really appreciate that scene with Athena. It's kind of a, a smaller thing, but I like that that happened because it kind of retroactively helps the books and also retroactively firms up Percy's character. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so Luke's not dead. Luke is not dead, so I wasn't able to tweet out that meme I made. What meme did you make? Uh, I think I sent you it. It's the one with um, the guy who plays the Flash... Uh, over the gravestone and the the oh. guy is labeled rick ride and the gravestone the gravestone is labeled luke's potential to be an interesting long-term antagonist yeah that is I, I i i knew in my heart of hearts and also in my remembrances of remembrances that luke was <laughs> not dead um so but i hmm if he comes back as a mindless hate zombie, I'm going to slash Rick Ryden's tires. I I would I would help you with that. That it would be horrifically bad. <laughs> that would be so uninteresting. Uh, but I'm glad he's not. I'm glad he's not dead. I'm glad he's not. Absolutely, dead. it would have sucked if that had been like the end of Luke. For sure. Especially since I guess we're not going to be seeing that much more of Thalia. No, at least not immediately. So, or at least not as presently. So it seems. Yeah. She doesn't seem to be sticking around as a main cast member. How do you feel about this as a resolution for Thalia's arc in this book? At first, I kind of felt like it had come out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. But the more I thought about it, the more it kind of made sense, especially if you contextualize it with, like, why Bianca joined the Hunters. Because one of, one of the things that we've learned about Thalia in this book is that she doesn't really have a family. Like, Zeus isn't there, her mom is gone, she's several years out of time with almost everyone she knew. So, like, of course she's gonna join up with a bunch of people who are like, hey, come and be in this family. And it's not even just the, like, weird culty aspect of it, like that. Sorry to... I mean, it's not a culty <laughs> aspect. It's, it's she wants to find a new community and she's found one. Yeah. But, like, it's also a really kind of... I guess a sacrifice she's making in a lot of ways. She's, this is Thalia like taking her own words and abandoning them for, for herself, which even like abandoning your pride for your, to even your own self-improvement can be really difficult. Yeah. But also just like for the world, because otherwise maybe the world would have ended the next day. 
<laughs> I mean, either that or Ares would have just turned her into paste. Right, right, of course. I I really do like this. Uh, it, it feels really appropriate. It feels... This is like the the biggest like bittersweet moment because I really like Thalia as a character. Yeah, definitely. I'd have been quite happy for her to stick around, but I can see like why this is a good direction to go with her. Absolutely. Can I talk about a detail that I just I I only noticed it on my second read through, and I really love it. Please. So, I was thinking about like what the title like the Titans Curse meant, and I realized oh, it's like it's Atlas holding up the sky. That's you go in thinking that it's something Kronos is doing, and then you realize later, oh no, it's actually Atlas. Right. But I really like, um, in the last chapter, after Nico runs away, and um, Percy's saying, you know what, F- fuck it, I'm not going to let this happen to him, I'll make sure that I become the child of prophecy. And Annabeth is like, you want to be responsible for the whole world? Oh. Yeah. Oh, he's literally yeah. putting the whole world on his back. It's the Titan's curse. Oh God, no! You're, I had not noticed that either. That's, That's so very... good. I love that. It's very good. It's very on the nose, but not in a bad way. Yeah, she didn't literally say putting the world on your back. That would have been a bit much. Yeah, but I, that was a great character moment for Percy. Him specifically saying like. I am going to do this so that Nico won't have to hurt anymore. That's, like, beautiful. It's beautiful. It's also exactly what Athena said in action. It is. It's exactly what Athena said. And that's part of what makes it so good. Mm -hmm. Percy doesn't care if it's a downfall. Percy doesn't care if it's a flaw. Percy doesn't care as long as he can keep saving his friends, the people he cares about, and people he feels that he, like... Because he... This is, like... If there's a thing in the series that Percy is going to have to carry as, like, this is my biggest mistake I've ever made, I have to assume it's him, like, quote, letting Bianca die, unquote. I also, like... Again, we're getting characterization of Kronos as just, like, this incredible master manipulator because he's i think it's fair to say that whoever the lawyer was who came and got bianca and nico out of the lotus hotel like that person probably worked for chronos right really you think so my thought was just my thought was that it was like hades or something hmm i i don't think just because like sea of monsters was basically one big long con for hades for chronos sorry to put as many potential children of prophecy on the board as possible. Right. So I feel like it would also make sense that he would, you know, he'd want to double up if he found out that the D'Angelo's were staying in the Lotus Hotel and Casino. No, it's 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 perfectly in line. You're right. I would not be surprised if that's true. There's a lot. I Kronos is a very good villain. He's not in this book at all, but... no. I'm still, like, into Kronos as a villain, even though he wasn't in this book at all. Yeah, I, the, one thing I've, like, noticed about this series as it's gone along is, like, the villains almost never lose outright. Like, they suffer setbacks, and there are things that go wrong for them, but nothing that any of the characters has done has, like, come close to, like, averting the huge Titan War. You're, you're so right. It's... It's always, like, one step forward, at least one step back for them. 
yeah it's this it's this great balancing act of like making each book feel satisfying and like the heroes have won but maintaining the threat of the villains as well for sure uh and i think there was a lot of a lot at play uh here because like nico is a rogue element now oh definitely we haven't had a rogue element this might this is like this is like the rogue element of the series it kind of feels like nico is young but like he's a good backup plan like worst case scenario chronos can just turn percy into jam wait a couple of years and then use nico exactly exactly um we do get confirmation of percy's age here i think so he is 14 yeah 14 going on 15 yeah so that means that that means thalia is 15 going on 16 forever god what a horrible existence true hopefully it's like you don't have to go through all the puberty bs through like you know like hunter do you think the hunters have hrt moon hrt it's just moonbeams oh moonbeams yeah you're right i think that i think they would i think i think the hunters are trans inclusive that's a trans exclusive (laughs) which is the opposite I mean, that's what I accused them of at the start of this book. You did. <laughs> I, 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 but we've we've softened the hunters now. Now we're pretty sure they're allies. Almost certainly. They accepted Thalia. She's trans. Correct. Hey, speaking of trans, what do you think Clarice was doing this book? I think Clarice. Okay, because she comes back with like important information, and all we hear about it is, like this is vital information about the attack plan on the camp yeah it gets interrupted by the luke thing and then we don't hear about it again i i have to wonder like is it like there's a big monster that they have like a new like maybe they have a god on their side maybe there's a new titan that was unleashed like it could be any number of things Mm -hmm. so it's, it's intriguing for sure there are a lot of little cliffhangers that are left in this chap in this final chapter the scene speaking of the final chapter can we talk about the scene the like the actual scene scene itself with nico yes yes we can this was oh it was horrible to read painstaking painstaking absolutely yeah like i I don't know what it i can't quite put my finger on it like you just feel the like tension and then pain when percy like is being told that you know this kid wishes he was dead because he failed i think there are a lot of like little uh writing strategies that rick does here Mm -hmm. to sort of enhance that feeling um the the conversation is very abbreviated yeah it's very it's very punchy yeah and not only that but like we don't hear the first half of it we don't hear percy telling him about zoe we don't hear any of what any of how percy says we only hear, like, I told him about this. We walked along silently, like, that kind of thing. And, like, we get told that Percy is, like, doing his best to try and, like, make excuses, basically. Yeah. There's something about, like, not actually hearing the words he's saying that make it worse. Okay, interesting. Well, I don't know. I don't have, like a, like, a big thought on it. I just think that, like, if... <laughs> I just think that like if if we actually heard Percy being like, "Well, Nico, your sister is dead. Um, I'm really sorry. She died, but she, you know, she died a hero's death. She was trying to protect us all, 
and you know she was really brave throughout the whole quest she wanted to save the quest and so you know she went the, the talos and she got you this figurine and you know i'm really sorry Nate. like if we heard all that it wouldn't be as effective i don't think yeah because... it, it cuts right to the important bit which is the silence and then nico saying you promised you would protect her exactly like that's the important bit of the scene and because it cuts right there it's brutal it is like being stabbed with a rusty dagger, as as the book puts it. There's something about like the little kid who looked up to Percy so much, like ten chapters ago. Yeah, screaming about how he can never trust him again, and throwing away the like toy that you know he used to. We saw that he was really enthusiastic about, it and he loved a lot. Right, and just saying like, "I wish you were dead." Like that's big. I think. One of the other things that also like makes this hurt even more is like like we were saying about um, Percy saying that he should be the child of prophecy. That's playing into his flaw. Like this scene is about his failure to protect someone, and it's not just like it's not just him feeling like shit about it. It's being reinforced externally that he's a failure because he couldn't do that. It's almost like saying here. Percy has this flaw. It's going to get him in trouble. It's going to get everyone in trouble. Absolutely. And and then it's saying, and yet, if Percy had, you know, done personal loyalty a little bit better, if, if he had played into his flaw more, then maybe he wouldn't have hurt Nico as much. And I think that's why him saying that, like, he'll take the responsibility, the prophecy on his shoulders works so well because he just had it reinforced that he has to play into that flaw. Like, it's it's simultaneously, like, his fatal flaw and also what makes him a good person. Exactly. So it's really bittersweet to see him, like, leaning into it. It's why it's such an interesting character conflict. Yeah. Hey, we're back to dickhead gods. We are back to dickhead gods. They are, they're back to being unrepentant, petty, totally opportunistic pieces of shit, and I love it. We meet Athena for the first time in her, like, godly form rather than just as, like, some tour guide. Yeah. And even after she, you know, tried to help Percy earlier, her first, like, action as we see her, like, fully revealed is to say, we should probably kill these kids. Yep, sure is. Even Annabeth's cool mom is, you know, totally down with the murder. I love that this is, like... A different side to the gods being unrepentant wankers where like previously we've gotten like zeus and Ares being like angry proud dickheads and we've gotten like aphrodite being quite self-absorbed and manipulating people for her own entertainment and then we have athena the cold strategist yeah like the needs of the many out- outweigh the needs of the few but in the worst possible way right and we get, I don't know, We I, it's good that we get to see this council because it characterized the gods in a pretty good way. I liked seeing everyone together. I liked seeing them all interact. It's almost as good as the scene where they're all together in Percy Jackson, the Lightning Thief, the movie. So true. <laughs> I love that scene where Poseidon was really big and everyone else was really, like, like, 
in text form, if you're like, oh yeah, they're all really big, it's like, wow, impressive. And but you actually show it, and it's like, oh, they're all really big on screen. And yeah, it's if like, you dodgy wow, green but... screen Logan Lerman in like he's fucking Stuart Little, it's gonna look weird. Yeah, it's gonna look weird, and it did. And but this looks fine because we aren't looking at it. Exactly. Uh, I kind of want to talk about Percy's jealousy with regards to Luke. Just because, like, usually, like, when a, like, romantic jealousy arc comes up in, like, YA fiction, that is, like, alarm bells ringing for me. Absolutely. we. I think we've talked about this before, and, like, when we yeah. talked about romance. Like, there's so many just... Not, not even just, like, you know, quote-unquote problematic, but just played out and dull tropes for associated sure. with that. But I kind of... I feel like this is going in an almost interesting direction with it. Where, like, yeah, Percy is kind of jealous and worried about Annabeth having feelings for another person. But also, when he says that, like, Luke deserved to bite it on the mountain, he's not wrong. No, that's coming from a very real and, like, bitter place of, like, I just watched my friends die and this prick is gonna survive. It, it humanizes that idea a lot more than just making it feel like a trope. It's coming from more than just a place of romantic jealousy. And it's not exactly. petty in that way. I think the lack of pettiness is really what brings it there. Because if if he was just like, I hate that Annabeth likes Luke still. Like, that would suck. If he was being a dick about it, then yeah. Right. He doesn't even say anything to Annabeth. Like, he, he says a little bit like, you know, why do you like want him to be alive or something like that but he doesn't argue with her even though he wants to yeah he doesn't he doesn't say anything like unreasonable i guess like every, everything he does say about it still makes sense through the context of this guy stabbed us in the back and has tried to kill us several times it just works it just works better because it's based in that very like real grief and pain uh rick continues to not read history books uh go on I don't know, it's it's this little section where um, Annabeth's dad is talking about, like, Pegasi and the Charge of the Light Brigade. Uh-huh. I don't think he knows what the Charge of the Light Brigade was. <laughs> okay, so the, the way it's framed in the book is like, oh my god, maybe this military maneuver would have been a success if they'd had these amazing flying horses. But, like, the Charge of the Light Brigade wasn't an, a military maneuver. It was a major fuck-up that killed thousands of people unnecessarily. <laughs> Okay, right. It was like, during the fucking Crimean War or something, it was just like, a bunch of cavalry who were told to charge at a bunch of cannons accidentally, and that ended about as well as you'd think it ends. That feels exactly like the kind of thing a military fetishist, vague nationalist would theorize about, (laughs) though. You know what? That's that's fair enough, actually. So, I I can't blame Rick for that. Noted uh, history teacher Rick. I still maintain that he hasn't read a lot of history. I, I don't want to stay either way, but <laughs> it, it's it's certainly possible. Do you think Annabeth's dad has like a drawer full of alternative history World War II fanfiction? Probably. <laughs> he has written long, angry blog posts about how German tanks compare to Soviet tanks. Yes, he has. Oh, Christ. <laughs> I hate thinking about it. There, there is no character. There is no father figure in this series that we won't find some way to turn them into a weird, like Nazi fetishist. 
it's because it's true always <laughs> this is what dads are in percy jackson yeah maybe it's a good thing that percy just grew up with his mom otherwise like poseidon would have been like you know in world war ii the 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 boats of germany were really impressive or something like that poseidon still has a u-boat in his palace of course <laughs> so i i'm i'm interested what you think about the choice to end the book on the cliffhanger revo- revo- I'm interested to hear what you think about the choice to in the book on the cliffhanger specifically about Pan. Uh, I feel like it's a little bit overshadowed by all the Nico things. A little bit, yeah. Obviously, it's important, and it's been like built up since book one that there is like some major Pan stuff, and that like Grover's a major character. Yeah. So, like this being like his big thing, it's very important. It does feel kind of. And it's like a good moment too. It's like well written. So like when you're just reading it, you're like, oh wow, I await you. That's awesome, you know. But it does like feel like an odd choice to leave the book on unless like this is going to be like the significant narrative next book. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's it's important like character stuff for Grover, but the Nico stuff was like that was important character stuff for the protagonist and also had like massive implications for the world and where the rest of the series is going to go. Right. But I guess so with the return of Pan. I don't know. I don't think have, have we been given an especially good idea of like what that would involve? Not necessarily, but it's a quest that like all of Satyrdom has been on forever and that Pan is like an extremely important god being the god of the wilds, you know what I mean? So I have to imagine to be very significant. Like, I think it makes sense because I can't like, like trying to wrap my mind around like what would be a good cliffhanger to do with the Nico stuff? There's not one. And this is the kind of series where like, or like at least Rick is the kind of writer where it's like, well, we got to have a big cliffhanger for next book. Yeah, definitely. That's That's been every book so far. So, I can't think of a better one than Pan. Like, I can't think of a better way it could have been done than this, necessarily. And I do think that, like, the Pan stuff will probably play, play an important role in next book if it's being put at the center like this. Yeah, I mean, off the top of my head... Oh, wait, holy fucking shit. What? Pan's Labyrinth. Oh my god. <laughs> well, folks... I think we just have to call it here now. I think we have to finish the episode now. <laughs> we, we like this book, our ending on a pan cliffhanger. Yes. I feel like there are, there are a million more things we could talk about. We could talk about the, it's like how Artemis is the best God. We could talk about like how, you know, she's the only one who isn't a wanker. We could talk about how like Blackjack has two other Pegasus friends named Guido and Porkpie. That's, funny i guess they're like uh you know italian i i didn't i didn't care about the pegasus friends i do think the bit where he asks percy if he can have his like cabin as a stable if he dies is quite funny it's a it it is very funny uh yeah i could have i couldn't have like i don't want to say i could have done without guido and pork pie but also i could have kind of done without guido and pork pie yeah but i mean blackjack's not going to carry three people across country it felt weird to have all three Nate. I guess they didn't like talk, but it was like, oh, my friends Guido and Pork Pie. Like that's a comedy moment, right? But it didn't really land. Yeah. Uh, other thing, other small things, other small things. Um, we saw Dionysus and Ariadne. 
You know what? I'm glad Dionysus was having a good day, even if he's still a massive prick. Absolutely. Oh, wait, there is one thing I wanted to talk about. Okay, okay. Which is, um, it's only a little thing, but it's at the end of uh, chapter 19. Right. Where Percy mentions, like, he and Annabeth have got, like, matching white spots in their hair from holding up the sky. I love that, like, it's a mark of their, like, bond and, you know, kind of almost shared trauma. And I like that it kind of um, resolves something from the beginning of the book, which is um, Percy's feelings of jealousy about, like, everything that um, Thalia, Luke, and Annabeth had been through together. Because it's kind of, it's showing this bond that they've built that is, I mean, if anything, stronger than those, because Thalia and Luke have both gone their separate ways now. Yeah, that's an element that's been at play since, like, at least, like, Sea of Monsters. Yeah. When they found the camp, when they found their, like, old campsite. And I'm glad that we do have this new step in, like, I guess their relationship and their, like, connection as characters. I think that's good. Yeah. Um, also, just, like, a character having a streak of gray in their hair is always cool. That's, it's very anime it's very anime and I love it. I like <laughs> anime. What can I say? Same. Last last note I have and then you can get into uh, your final thoughts. Okay. Uh, I feel like we've gotten like a big shift in the dynamic between Poseidon and Percy here. Book one, Poseidon kind of more or less like uses Percy. Like Percy is doing his thing. He's not, you know, doing great, but he's living... A relatively normal mortal life, and then he gets pulled into things because Poseidon needs someone to uh, save his neck from Zeus. Yeah, and then in book two we see that like you know, Poseidon's not like a completely opportunistic, unfeeling piece of shit. He will like help Percy just for the sake of helping Percy, but in in this book he actively like sticks his neck out for Percy, and says like you know on his honor. He's going to protect Bessie because Percy said to. And he promises that Percy is not going to like destroy the gods. He admires and trusts Percy enough that he is willing to make that commitment. Yeah, it feels like a really good shift in the relationship. It, because it feels like that real sort of like deadbeat dad trying to make amends in his own way. Yeah, definitely. So I'm I'm very into it for sure. I'm, I'm glad we give that kind of side of him. So... What do we think about the Titan Scourge as a whole? I think... I don't like it quite as much as I like Lightning Thief. Really? But it's better than Sea of Monsters by a fairly wide margin, so it's still doing pretty good. Absolutely. I would say that I maybe do like it more than I like Lightning Thief. Huh. I think there were times when Lightning Thief was pretty by the numbers. Yeah, that makes sense. This felt like it was innovating on itself in a lot of nice ways. Yeah, I think in that way, this book had, like, it had higher highs than Lightning Thief, but I also think there were some, like, early stumbling blocks, which made it, like, the, the on average, maybe not quite as good as Lightning Thief for me. Right. And I know we have the differing opinions of it. Definitely. Like, at the beginning. So that that probably still rings true. But it was, it was definitely better than Sea of Monsters. Oh, absolutely. Sea of Monsters is the uh, the unfortunate sophomore album. Yeah. Titan's Curse was a very good individual book. It feels like it's going to be even better as, like, set up for the rest of the series. 
Oh, absolutely. Like The threads that have been set up here, I can't wait to see how they're developed. Some of the conflicts at play are just fascinating to me. I can't wait to see how everything with Nico turns out, everything with... Even the like major play stuff still is good to me. Like the Titans stuff is like, wow, if more if more Titans get out, that'd be a disaster. And yeah, like yeah, I guess that's something we didn't even really address. Atlas is the first time we have seen like a Titan more or less at full strength, and he was fucking terrifying. Like there's no way they'd be able to beat like two Titans. Absolutely not. With the force of like all the gods, maybe. But it's just like it's like heroes on a quest. No, absolutely, absolutely not. So I'm, I'm very curious how this series is going to like what what will it be like the like the grand conflict next book? Will it be another Titan? Will it be like a some entirely different shift of like, like what's it gonna be? You know, I'm very curious. I'm hoping we don't end up with like ten thousand Titans. I I don't think there are that many Titans, but I do agree. Because it'll be kind of like the. The Dalek problem, where it's like, one Dalek is horrible and terrifying and will be a massive threat for most of the episode, and then 10,000 Daleks are literally nothing because they have to explode by the end. Right, right. Are the Daleks scary? Uh, in like, the, the first series of the reboot, the Daleks are genuinely terrifying. And then they just kind of became more and more comedic and flanderized as it went on. I always just saw pictures of them and I was like, oh, cute little trash can. That's that's fun. There's there's an episode in the like the 2005 series, which is a straight up slasher episode with a Dalek running through a base slaughtering people. Oh my god. It's really good. If next book is a slasher book, then <laughs> I would be fine with that. That'd be fun. I, I mean, if it's them like trapped in a labyrinth, maybe with the Minotaur or something, that could be kind of where it goes. Oh, the return of the Minotaur. The- you almost you almost got me saying it. <laughs> the return of the Minotaur. Britishification. Uh, <laughs> oh God! One day we'll become British, and it will be your fault. <laughs> and you'll have to take on the responsibility of living in a. <laughs> I doxed myself. Unfortunate. Uh. Anyway. <laughs> uh. I'm very excited for next book. Absolutely. Uh, this is gonna be a blast. Jane, thank you for coming with me on this journey again. Let's go to our no segment. No problem at all. Oh, yes. Let's go. All uh, right. Do you have a pick? Ready? Per- Percy Jackson characters are not cishat. My pick for this week is Clarice. Uh-huh. She got, she got a cool new lesbian-y haircut. <laughs> That's very accurate. How about you? Uh, my pick for this week is Apollo, because he's just sitting in a meeting with his parents on his phone composing shitty haikus, which is like big kind of gay theater kid energy. Gay boy behavior for sure. Absolutely. We we have had some good picks this book. Definitely. I can't wait for them to become canon. <laughs> so true. Ah, <laughs> uh, Yeah. Uh, next time we'll be reading the Battle of the Labyrinth chapters one through four, probably. Yeah, I feel like the the way we did it this book worked pretty well. Four, four, and then three for the rest of it. Probably, we'll see how it goes. Uh, so if you're reading if you're reading along, read up on those. Uh, we are building up a backlog 
So if you like, I think we mentioned this on the bonus episode, but not on the main episode. We're going to be like a few weeks behind. So if you send any questions or like, you know, email us or whatever, it'll probably take a little bit. Uh, same goes for like Patreon names and such. If you want to do a funny little goof on us, uh, it will probably take a couple weeks more than, you know, usual. But, you know, it's fine. It's for our health and well-being. That's true. So, I think that does it for us this week. It does indeed. If you'd like to reach the show, you can drop us an email at unwisegirlspod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at unwisegirls, where we also have a link to our official Discord server. If you want to support us, you can let a friend know about us, uh, recommend them our show, uh, leave a rating and review, check out our Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash unwisegirls. For a dollar a month, you get a special role in our Discord marking you as a camp counselor. Uh, for three dollars a month, you get an even specialer role as a friend of Dionysus and access to all our bonus content. On our latest bonus episode, we talked about uh, we talked about E three a little bit. We talked about we talked about uh, YouTube wrestling. Yeah, we talked about some, my favorite YouTube wrestling show, and we talked about. I'm um, scrolling up in our chat logs to see the description because I can't remember exactly what we talked about, but it's fine. I talked about I'm... how uh, the writers on Yu-Gi-Oh uh, need to start taking influence from obscure 1980s sci-fi novels. Ah, uh, listen, you know what kind of people you're listening to. Yeah, and if you're feeling especially generous for five dollars a month, you get the special stroll of Aphrodite's Chosen, all of our bonus content, and a special thank you at the end of every episode. Speaking of, uh, this week we'd like to thank Mercy, Veronica, Friend, and Erica, this bitch forgot to too, time to roast her ass, Faye. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. And, as we always say, at the end of every episode... See you next week, Camp Half-Blood. See you next week, Camp Half-Blood. Bye! Bye. Bye.